are in week 16 of our study through the book, The Gospel of Matthew. And this has been the Sermon on the Mount section. It's right at the, uh, towards the beginning of the book. And we're actually closing out the Sermon on the Mount this morning, uh, which is kind of exciting. And because after this, the way it becomes more about storytelling and then direct teaching from Jesus, there's some pockets of that um, throughout the book. But we get more stories. So if you've been looking forward to the miracle stories and all of that, that's what comes next. Uh, but this morning we're in Matthew 7, verses 7 through 12. And uh, this, is, uh, this is interesting that one thing I wanted to point out kind of from a context perspective is that uh, there's two, we began the Sermon on the Mount with verse chapter 5, verse 17, which says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. And then we end the Sermon on the Mount with for chapter 7, verse 12, which says, So whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. So same phrase, bracketing the whole sermon. And that's how we know where the Sermon on the Mount begins and ends. Okay, And so in your Bible, it might have, in my ESV Bible, it actually puts the break at a different spot, a different verse, and that's wrong, okay? That's not how it was, it wasn't formatted that way when it was written, okay? That's stuff that your Bible um, editors put in to help you break up um, the Scripture, just like the verse, chap chapter numbers and verse numbers are not inspired Scripture. Matthew wasn't writing in verse numbers and chapter numbers. That's put in there for reference, okay? And so that's why I'm ending it where I'm ending it. Um, because all of the Sermon on the Mount is basically Jesus taking the law and the prophets, everything that the Israelites understood about God and the world, and he's taking that and he's translating it. And he's saying, I'm not doing away with it. I'm actually continuing it, but I'm also fulfilling it. And that's, that's kind of the overarching theme of the Sermon on the Mount. And so this morning we're going to look at 7 through 12, and, uh, and just break it down. And I think you're going to find that this is about something more than what you thought it was. When you, start, when you slow down and look at this, this is a familiar text. But it's deeper than you might think or might have thought about. So let's look at this. Matthew 7, 7 through 12 says this, Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. And the one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks, it will be opened. Or which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father, who is in heaven, give good things to those who ask him? So whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets." Okay, so this scripture tends to get bent into the shape of the reader's kind of pre-existing theology and worldview, okay? Depending on who you ask and what your perspective is on things like the prosperity gospel and all of that, you might think, well, this is Jesus telling me that it, whatever I asked for, he's going to give me. And if I don't get what I asked for, then that's because I don't have enough faith that he will give me whatever I asked for. 
right? See, the logic in that is it's not really logical, but that's that's the that's the thought process. Is that that's what the scripture is saying? And that is not what the scripture is saying, because if in order to get there, you end up having you have to ignore the context and ignore the grammar of the actual sentence. Okay, and that's not you know that's a really bad way to read the Bible. Well, this is also not true that it's the opposite. It is also not true that God doesn't want that God doesn't want to give you what you ask for. Okay, it's a little more nuanced nuance than that and deeper than that. So if you wrench this out of context and ignore the grammar, you can end up with the idea that God will give me whatever I want if I ask him. Um, and maybe we add some qualifications because we know that God won't give us bad things. And so we start doing these gymnastics trying to explain why this is true, but also sort of not completely true the way it's written. And that's also a bad way to read the Bible. Okay, We need to let it speak for itself and conform our theology to what the text says instead of the other way around, all right? So um, first let's just talk about the grammar. That's the simplest thing to talk about, and then we'll talk about kind of contextually what this might mean. If you look at the imperative verbs or the commands in this verse, especially specifically, specifically that's a hard word to say, specifically verse seven and eight, you see three, ask, seek, and knock, right? Those are the verbs in that sentence, this is in their commands, their imperatives, like do this. It's a command from God to do something. I want you to ask, I want you to seek, and I want you to knock. All of those verbs are present tense. They're not past tense verbs. It doesn't say ask like you have asked or you did ask. It's present tense. Um, and it's easy to miss that in English because our language flows a little differently. So it's kind of easy to just read right over that and miss that. In Greek, it's super obvious, okay? These are present verbs, which means that these are things that are to be done continually right now. They stay in the present. There's something you do continually over and over and over again. You are, we are to ask, seek, and knock now and without ceasing. There's no end specified, okay? So the ask is more like asking continually. The seek is more like seeking continually and knock is knocking continually. And once you see that, right, the, the, that scripture takes on a whole different tone, a whole different kind of depth of meaning. So let's read it again with the Ben Cotton translation, all right? This is Matthew 7, 7 through 8. Keep on asking and it will be given to you. Keep on seeking and you will find. Keep on knocking and it will be open to you. For everyone who asks receives and the one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks, it will be open. All right, do you see that? As soon as you recognize that, this becomes not just about, well, I asked for something yesterday and now God's just going to give it to me. Or if it doesn't say, if you ask really hard, if you really, really mean it, right? If you mean it extra, an extra amount, if you really, really feel it, he'll give it to you. Or if you, if you have a word from God and you ask, he'll give it to you. It doesn't say that. Just ask and keep asking and keep asking, keep seeking, keep knocking. That's the emphasis of this. So suddenly you realize that there's this is more about persistence and perseverance than God simply giving us the stuff we want. Okay, this is about perseverance. It's about seeking God and persevering in that seeking and persevering in that knocking. All right. 
So that's a huge point. Then we have the context. This is maybe the most powerful part of it. Context is always the most important thing you need to see in scripture, okay? So even if you know nothing about Greek grammar, that's fine. You'd still get the point if you just pay attention to where this little teaching exists in the broader context of what Jesus is teaching in the Sermon on the Mount, all right? So don't forget that this is the right at the end of the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus has been defining for us what a citizen of the kingdom of God is like. Remember, that's kind of the, the theme, okay? It's what does it look like to be to follow Jesus, to be a disciple, to be a citizen of the kingdom of God? All those words mean the same thing, okay? What is the culture of the kingdom like? What is, uh, what's the profile of a real Christian look like? How can we define that? What, how do we treat each other? How do we think? How do we act? How do we live? That's the theme here, all right? He's been applying the Old Testament law to a New Testament world, and we have found it to be very a very, very high expectation. Just take the start, the Beatitudes themselves by themselves, and you have like an impossible standard, right? And then we have Jesus actually telling us in chapter 5, 48, that we have to be perfect. So it just makes me laugh because I'm so not perfect. And I know most of you, and I know that you're not perfect, okay? And so there isn't a higher standard than be perfect. And it's like it's so high that we read it, and it's like, unless you're really like a unique person, it's so easy just to read over that statement and go, it's so, such a high lofty standard that it's almost like we can't process it. But this is the expectation. This is what a citizen of the kingdom of God is like, is that we are perfect. And so how do we make sense of that command over and against what we actually see and what we actually experience in our own life and our own heart because we're not perfect? And this is the, the rub, right? Is that the truth is God, Jesus is making us, he is giving, going to give us his righteousness at the cross. And he's going to make us over time conform to that righteousness. And so when we stand before him in that day, whether that be the, the moment you die or when he returns at the second coming, we actually will be that, okay? That's the mystery of Christianity. So, Thinking from the perspective of God, he says, um, excuse me, I got ahead of myself. Um, I got excited about that part. Um, on nearly every point in Jesus' sermon, we, have, we come up woefully short, right? Not just the Beatitudes, but the whole thing. We come up short at every point he makes. Jesus got, has just got done saying, I think we covered this last week, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. So I don't think there's any chance. And one of the questions you got to ask about the verse we're reading is, what does he mean by good gifts? If anyone asks his father for a good gift, won't he give it to them, right? Well, what's a good gift? What, what would God say a good gift is? The problem with some interpretation of this verse is that we define a good gift by what we think a good gift is. Well, I think a good gift is a nice house and a nice car and a good job and kids that behave and are handsome but not too handsome, right? And, and where everything is going well and I'm healthy and I'm happy and I'm well and I'm well adjusted and there's no COVID and there's no job shortage and there's no, you know, opposition to what I believe 
and church meets every Sunday and the church is really big and everybody shows up and there's thousands of people and there's plenty of money in the bank, we, de we define good gifts a certain way. And it's generally a good gift is defined by what makes us most comfortable and most happy. But does God define good gifts that way? I think we all know the answer to that is no. Just read your Bible, right? A good gift from God is, is, is a different thing, right? Um, the king of the kingdom of God stands before you and tells you that he wants to give you good gifts. And then all you ask for is basically bread, a job, and a roof that won't leak. When the king of the kingdom of God has far more than that to give us. What if the prosperity gospel then is actually a gospel of poverty because it's asking for too little, not too much? The problem with the health and wealth heresy is that it fails to see that the pearl of great price, which is in Matthew 13, we'll get there eventually, that that pearl of great price isn't anything that this world can give. It's Christ. Christ is the good gift. Like what's the most valuable thing from God's perspective that he could give you? Is it a new car? I mean, come on, Oprah can give you a new car. You can give you a new car. What's the most valuable thing God can give you? What's the greatest good gift he can give us? It's Jesus and all that is in Christ, not just Jesus dying for you, but what Jesus gives you in his death, which is his righteousness, his place with God, his seat next to God in heaven. As the son of God, he, give, he brings you into his family. That's the greatest gift God can give us. That doesn't mean he won't give you other stuff because he's a good dad and he loves his kids. He loves blessing his kids. Just like it makes you happy to give other people gifts, it makes him happy to give people gifts, okay? So it's not an either or thing, but I think quite often we, we ask for too little. God's holding out his hand saying, I'm going to give you good gifts. And we go, great, can I have this paltry little thing that's going to burn up in a fire if I'm not careful? And God says, wait, I, I kind of have more than that. I have eternity in my hand. I have righteousness in my hand. I have authority in my hand. I have the truth in my hand. I don't want to give you that, and you're not even asking for it. We look, we, we have such a small vision, I think, sometimes of what a good gift is. Okay, so put all this together with the idea of persistence and perseverance. And this is really, I think what Jesus is addressing here is that in all these things where we have come up short, as he's been teaching this high expectation, high bar Christianity, an impossible standard, and we continually find ourselves bumping up against that friction of falling short and having this Jesus put before us this aspiration of attaining this perfection and us falling short over and over again, that is what we're seeking God over. We're saying, God, I am falling short of your expectation here. And I'm not just falling short by a small degree, I'm falling short by an eternal degree. God, help me. God, make me more generous. Help me to turn the other cheek. Help me to be humble. Help me to be, seek the kingdom first and your righteousness above all other things. Help me not to be anxious about tomorrow. Help me to actually do that. 
Help me not to worry. Help me to be a peacemaker. Help me to be um, poor in spirit. Help me to be all these things that you have taught us that we need to be. Help me to be generous to the poor. Help me to be a person of prayer. All these things where we fall short and we're seeking God, not just once going, okay, the meeting was nice. The sermon was nice. I'm going to pray at the end of that sermon. I'm going to ask God to do that for me. No, that's not what he's after. What he's after is this continual, persistent, persevering, seeking and knocking and asking God, not just for stuff that could burn up in a fire or be taken away by a thief, but to pray and seek God for the eternal good things that he is providing for us and saying he'll give us. The other part of this, I think, is I'm more and more convinced that the church in America is headed for a difficult time. I don't think things are going to get easier. I don't want to say that your life's going to be miserable because that's not true because the kingdom of God doesn't ever go down. It always goes up. And quite often there's an inverse relationship between how things are going in the world and how things are going in the body of Christ. And that revival and renewal tends to come in the middle of hardship. And so it's not, a, it's not bad news, but I don't think we can sit around and just go, well, things are getting better. And when they get better, we'll just go back to normal. Well, the normal we were in was not that great. Okay? Like we, we want more than what we've experienced in God. And this to me plays into this idea of asking continually, seeking continually, knocking continually saying, God, I want the good stuff. I don't want to settle for the stuff I have. I don't want to settle for the level of faith that I have, the level, level of humility that I have, the level of sincerity in my worship, um, my, my level of hunger for your word. I don't want to settle for what I have. I want more. I want the good stuff from you. And this is what we have to all begin to press into God for. I think there's backlash coming against the church because we have been confused with bad examples of Christians in the world. People who seek political power over kingdom power, people who seek um, worldly influence over kingdom influence, people who want to import worldly values and ways of doing things where might makes right. They want to import that into the church and somehow merge that with the kingdom values that Jesus is espousing in the Sermon on the Mount. And the world has seen that and they think we're all like that that we all think that way, that we all act that way, that we're all just selfish, bigoted, crazy people, right? Who just want political power. And they have said, we hate that and we hate you. And the backlash is coming against us. And there's no chance for you and I to say, no, 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 we're not like that. We're just all one big team to the world. And we gotta be okay with that. And the response to that is not to fight the way the world fights. The response to that opposition has got to be to ask, seek, and knock. And say, God, I need you to help me to be a real Christian. There are lots of false prophets out there saying that everything's going to be fine. Trump will save us. Just hold the line. Be, but all the prophets and leaders that I trust are saying the, the opposite. God has allowed us to this nation to come loose from its moorings. And so my concern is that every Christian listening to my voice right now will be persistent in their asking and their seeking and their knocking. 
and that what you ask for is not the paltry offerings of this life, but that you would ask God to give you the good gift of the character of Christ, that your hearts would burn with zeal for his kingdom and his righteousness above all else, and that you would persevere no matter the cost or the distraction. I think this is all wrapped up in what Jesus is teaching here. And we've made it so small. We've made the, 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 the gifts that he's giving us so small and so paltry that we've lost the fact that Jesus is holding in his hand immense wealth. He's holding in his hand his righteousness and his kingdom. He's saying, come build it with me. Don't trade that for just bread and a roof that won't leak. Amen? All right. So that leaves, I think, the question is, a, you know, one kind of diagnostic question, which is, do you know how to feed yourself? Do you know how to do this? Do you know what it looks like to ask, seek, and knock? Do you know what it looks like to pursue God in this way? Because um, I think a lot of us, because that's a muscle we haven't exercised, we don't know quite how to start. So I just want to kind of give you four, four things. These are classics, all right? This won't be surprising, right? But I think now these things are more important than they were before, okay? And this kind of plays into this idea that depending on uh, a Sunday morning thing to do this for you doesn't work anymore. You gotta start to do this yourself. The, the four means of grace, this goes back to the Reformation, all right, this is not new. The word, prayer, fellowship, and sacrament. So baptism and the Lord's Supper, communion, right? Word, you gotta learn to read the Bible for yourself Root yourself in the scripture. Root yourself down in what God says about himself and what God says about you, right? You have to know that. You can no longer depend on someone else to tell you what God says in his word. You must learn to feed yourself from his word directly out of your own hand with your own Bible and your own self praying through it, right? That's number one. Two, fellowship. You got to figure out how to do that. I know that's complicated, but it's not nearly as complicated as you think it is. It's just as simple as a text or a phone call and saying, hey, I wanna, I wanna talk to you. I wanna hang out with you. Um, how can we do that, All right? And just figure it out. You gotta stay 10 feet away from each other, do it, but go do it, right? You need fellowship. It feeds your spirit, it feeds you. Fellowship with other believers is important. Prayer, become a person of prayer. Is the easy way to do that is to merge that with your time in the Word, right? Because you read the Word, it inspires you to pray, and so you start praying. And you just begin to connect with God and ask Him for things. Worship Him in prayer. So Word, fellowship, prayer, and sacrament. Um, we take communion here. I think communion, though, is a thing that, you, that really doesn't make sense from the way Jesus described it to do it virtually. We've done it over Zoom. I don't like doing it that way. I think a better way to do it is to do it with other people. And so we do that when we meet together as often as we can. But listen, I think you can connect this with your fellowship thing. Like if you get together with a friend, like it's not that weird to say, can we take communion together? Get out a piece of bread and some wine and like do it together in your living room or out at the park or whatever, right? It's not that weird. And it's another thing that you can do that feeds you, that is not dependent on other people to do it for you, right? So those four things, this basic act, Christian activities, all right, those four things. <clears throat> and so that's how you feed yourself. And I just wanna encourage you 
to begin to learn to do those things and pay attention to those things in your life within this greater context of asking, seeking, and knocking. This is what it means to pursue God. These are the things you do to pursue God in your life, okay? All right. Well, I want to pray for you and bless you this morning. Ask God to do this in you that you would become askers and seekers and knockers pursuing God um, together. So let's pray. God, I thank you so much for your word and for your challenge to us. God, we do feel quite often our inadequacy to live up to your standard, and there's a reason for that. It's why you died for us. Uh, you have given us your righteousness, and Lord, I pray that you would teach us to be people that pursue that continually. God, we see our lack, and we see your provision for that lack, and we want to access it. God, we want to be what you've called us to be. God, I pray in this time, this season as a church, that you would make all of us self-feeders, that we would not be asking and seeking you through someone else, but we would be doing that for ourselves on our own so that we can be strengthened as believers and so that we can be a source of ministry to other people, each one of us. God, I pray that not one of us would any longer use the excuse of, well, I'm just not that spiritual. But God, that you would um, give, give none of us a backdoor escape or an excuse, but every single one of us who is a part of Living Hope Church will begin to seek you for ourselves and feed ourselves and do those four things, that we would be people of the word, people of fellowship, people of prayer, and people that commune together in the Lord's Supper. God, help us to be those kinds of people. In the name of Jesus. Amen. Love you guys. See you next time. Have a great week.